Our reading uh, this morning is from John 6, verses 53 and 54. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them at the last day. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we honor you as the one true triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that lives within us. Thank you, Lord, for your love, your mercy, your grace that you show us every day. We thank you for this church, this congregation. We thank you for all our staff. We pray for your wisdom for them in the next coming months, especially for our vacation Bible school. We pray that you will give Julie and her helpers the wisdom that she needs, and you know which children should be here. Thank you for our community. Thank you for our pastor. And be with us this week, Lord, and let our light shine to our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hold on, Barb. Come back here. She's an elder. I may get fired right after the service. I, I did this to Paul Wardlaw in the first service. So I picked two elders today that need our prayer. Paul, we prayed for last week. He's our chairman, and he's fighting cancer. Okay? And it's not easy, and it's serious. There's others in the congregation that uh, some are sicker than him. Some aren't quite as sick as him, but they all need our prayer. We're going to pray for him. And the other one is Barb, one of our, I know, quit punching me and pinching me. (laughs) Barb, one of our elders, uh, is resigning because they're moving to lower altitude. We are so grateful, Frank, for you and Barb. Let's just tell them thank you for all the work that they've done. Father, uh, thank you for Frank and Barb. Lord, thank you for their, their wonderful gift to us as a church. And uh, while we are sorry to let them go, we know that there's another church about to be blessed by them. So strengthen them uh, for this task and uh, continue to keep them healthy for many, many years. Thank you for their sacrifice, their love for us, their, uh, their deep passion for you. It is very contagious for all of us who run elders. And Lord, I do pray for Paul and the others who are sick. Lord, uh, they need you. They need you desperately. We need them more than you need them. So I pray that you would restore them all to health, whatever that looks like. Uh, We're okay with however you decide to do it. We just need them healthy in here. Uh, So Lord, please take care of our people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. She's pinching me when you're not looking. I love all of our elders. They prefer to be quiet in the background, serving. Every single one. Uh, I'm the only one that gets away with blah, 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 being up front all the time. Elders hardly ever get up here. Okay, a couple of announcements. If you got my email this week and saw the video with me and Julie, you know that that, uh, VBS is coming. You look on the website. There's information about it. And we could use your help. 
Kate, you can find out all about it. The, also, we have coming up, you'll hear more about it in, in a couple of weeks, is uh, two or three weeks, something like that, is Baptism Sunday and Inquirer's class. For those of you that want to know more about our church and are just curious, that's the first step towards becoming members, although you don't have to become members, but you can come learn. And then if you have not been baptized but would like to be, talk to the office or me, either one, and we will uh, make that happen. Okay, we are in a study on Leviticus. For those of you that are visitors, quit rolling your eyes, okay? Most people don't think of Leviticus as a study that you do. It's, if you've ever read it, it's like 8,000 commands. And uh, I have argued for a long time that Leviticus actually captures the heart of God because it is the one book in the Old Testament that gives us the theology by which we live our lives even today. It's not in all the commands. It's in the reason for the commands when you compare them with the ancient nations. So we're halfway through Leviticus, and we're going to jump into it again today. But let's set the stage. Remember where we are. We're just maybe two or three, four, six months away from Egypt now. We're still at the base of Mount Sinai. We haven't started the journey. We haven't started wandering yet. That happens in Numbers. And so he just told them that uh, they entered into a covenant. If you obey me fully, I will make you a kingdom of priests. We become God's priests for the rest of the world. And so you're slaves, and you're going, priests? We don't know anything about being a priest. And so Leviticus is the book that actually explains what it means to be priests on behalf of the world. It's, it's the, what we call the Leviticus, I mean the holiness code. It's that portion of the Old Testament where holiness is discussed and teaches us what we are to be like in our lifestyle. And so everything else outside of Leviticus is all about the history and and things like that. But Leviticus is where the theology is actually laid down. And I've used the metaphor of a blueprint. It's a blueprint. Okay, it's just a piece of paper. On a blueprint, you find where the walls are supposed to be and the electrical wire is supposed to run and all that. But that's all it is, a piece of paper. You need a builder to take the blueprint and turn turn it into something. That happens at the New Covenant when the Holy Spirit comes along. All of a sudden, we have the builder. God is the architect, the Holy Spirit's the builder, and he builds this house. That's why we're called the spiritual house and the spiritual temple, uh, depending on where you are in the New Testament. And so Leviticus lays that foundation and gives us the plan, the design of what God's people, what he envisioned all along for us when he created us. And so um, we're in Leviticus 17 today. But let me remind you a couple things before we get into it that uh, God does three things whenever he steps into our world. He begins to mitigate evil practices. And we're going to see that very clearly today. We're talking about blood today. What do you do with animals when you kill them? What if you kill them at the temple? What if you kill them out in the woods? What if you find a dead animal? It's pretty boring when you read it until you understand what he's actually communicating in contrast to the Canaanite nations. So he begins to mitigate evil practices in the world. He introduces dignity And in today's text, he's introducing the dignity of animals and all of creation. They deserve dignity as well. And the world can never get to the concept of dignity, ever. I don't know of a single example in world history, apart from Christianity, where people naturally came up with the concept of dignity. It's not in Hinduism, not in Buddhism, not in any of the ancient religions. And then the third thing he does is he points the way, the true north. All of us have a moral compass that's just broken. And so... Um, all of a sudden we read Leviticus and that compass points the way. That's the meaning behind the word Torah. 
The Pentateuch, the first five books, are called the Torah, the law. When you hear the word law, you think of commands and rules, but it's actually much broader and deeper than that. It's actually pointing the way. So what we're going to see today in Leviticus 17 with animals is actually a very critical text in world history. It changes the entire world's perspective on blood. It points the way to the coming Messiah. If we didn't have Leviticus 17, we would not understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Leviticus 17 lays that foundation. So we're stepping into a world-changing text today when we do this. Okay, <coughs> let me say a couple of words. The, uh, this is now starting the second half of Leviticus. I think it's a major division. Last week was Leviticus 16, which was the Day of Atonement. Starting, uh, starting with Leviticus 17 to 27, the second half, well, the first half was dealing with the uh, regulations for public life and worship. But we have a nation. Let's be honest, okay? How many times can you get the whole nation together to listen? It can't happen, right? They're just about to enter the promised land, and pretty soon they're all going to be scattered all throughout the promised land. Well, they're not theologians. They're former slaves. They're going to learn how to raise crops and animals and they're not going to remember all these, these rules. They're just not going to. So now he's beginning to turn the corner to what does it mean for you as an individual, wherever you happen to be in the promised land, wherever you are, we're going to, he's going to give us some things, ways to think about it and what to do and what not to do. In other words, this chapter from here on applies to ordinary people and their lives away from the sanctuary. You know, they may be hundreds of miles from the temple, so not hearing the things taught every week. And so what are they supposed to do, and how are they supposed to handle it? And um, how do they keep from integrating into the surrounding nations? It's far easier to incorporate, uh, to integrate, to enculturate into the world around you than it is to stand for righteousness. That's the easiest natural path. So from here on out, these are all about how to stay firm and standing before the Lord. At the heart of this section is a call to people to live holy lives. That's the heart of it. This, these, are, these are the holiness texts. Now he's getting down to the individual level and say, what does it actually look like? I want you to be priests when, even when you're 100 miles from the temple. And so we're going to take a peek at what that looks like. Chapter 17 is all about blood, the sanctity of blood. And uh, several theological themes emerged from this that become very significant. One is blood is holy. Okay, now remember, we've talked several times before. We talked about it in the chapter on childbirthing and, uh, and the, the women when they have issued of blood, issues of blood and all that. The surrounding nations, here's how they thought about blood. Blood was bad. It was filled with disease. It represented death. It's how demons came into the world. Remember, you may remember that I said to the mothers, can you imagine giving childbirth? It came time and they took you out of the village, out of the camp real fast because they didn't want demons released inside the camp. So they take you outside the camp to, have, to give birth and then uh, they have a, a, a priest or a witch doctor uh, kind of going around you saying all these incantations because they're afraid a demon's going to release and take the life of the child because children die. So that's how they made sense of it. Must be a demon taking the life of a child or mothers die. So you have this priest or witch doctor going around doing these incantations during birth. Can you imagine the terror that's involved in that? And when you read in our uh, Leviticus, none of that terror is there. Stay at home. Okay? And uh, the Lord will take care of you. And there's none of that. 
And life, the life is in the blood. He begins to build a case because the world saw blood as bad. Disease, demons, death. Okay? And that was all part of blood. And so we're going to learn here that the life is in the blood and not only that, but it's holy. And so uh, this is beginning to set the stage for the coming Messiah, the death on the cross. Right here with this chapter, world history has taken a large turn in their belief. He's mitigating bad practices and beliefs. Blood is good, not bad. But we're going to see a couple times in this chapter, from here on out, this language of if you violate it, you're going to be cut off. Okay? Cut off from the people. Now, that, that phrase is used in a variety of ways throughout the Old Testament and the law. Um, it can be used if we're in the group and one of you commits uh, adultery or something like that, we can all see it. We have the responsibility to deal with it. And that often involved uh, death. That's kind of what one of the things behind this uh, cutting off. But it could also involve communication, uh, excommunication. You're no longer part of us. But what do you do about the person that's way out 100 miles away from the temple out in the field? What's that person going to do? The third part of this is the idea that God will, your sin will find you out because you can't escape the Lord. He knows everything. He sees everything. So don't think just because you sin in private that it's private. It is not private. We saw that yet last week and a couple weeks before with Hebrews 4. You know, the Word of God is living and active. It's exposed. Everything is exposed before the Lord. And furthermore, you want that to be the case. I've asked many teenagers over the years, they complain about their mom and dad. My mom's wacko. Yep, that's what your mom gets paid to do. I'm really glad she's that way. Yeah, but she's got all these rules, or I'm being punished because of this and that and the other. And I said, all right, you know kids who's, uh, you have friends whose parents don't care, don't you? Yeah. Is that really what you want? Well, no. I mean, maybe the parents go a little too far. Maybe they don't quite go far enough. That's not my issue. That's their issue. It's their family. I had enough trouble on my own. But you want parents who care. We want a God who cares and knows. I don't ever want to get away with anything. Because the moment I get away with something that God doesn't know about, he's no longer God. So we actually want this to happen. So this cutting off it, uh, outside of community, yes, at one level it is a warning, but it's also a covering for grace because God knows exactly what to do. And it's fascinating when we get to the New Testament, all the major warnings are accompanied by blood. You're going to see that a little bit later on. Okay, the main idea of Leviticus 17 is that life is in the blood and therefore it belongs to God because he created it. Blood belongs to the Lord. So the people of Israel had to demonstrate their loyalty to the Lord by doing one of several things. If they're going to offer a sacrifice, if the animal's death is related to a sacrifice, they have to bring the blood to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the temple, wherever they happen to be in history. Okay? That's the first thing because the life blood belongs to the Lord. Excuse me. The second thing is that they weren't allowed to drink the blood. No eating or drinking of the blood. That's very clear in this chapter. Unlike the surrounding nations, it's always a puzzle to me how they thought so poorly of blood, but yet they would drink it. 
One of the things you learn, you know, I teach in animistic countries, voodoo countries, Buddhist countries, Hindu countries, and their religions don't make sense. They have so many things that just don't, they're mutually exclusive ideas, and here's one of them to me. But the, uh, the third thing you learn is that blood that came from hunting animals or dead animals had to be poured out and treated with respect. Okay, we're not going to cover that portion of the chapter in detail, but if you shot an animal for food or killed an animal for food, you had to pour the blood out on the ground and bury it. Treat it with honor and respect. That's called dignity. Okay? You couldn't drink it. You just couldn't do that. All right. So the chapter is broken into four sections, but we're only going to look at one section, the first section today. The first section is on sacrificing animals. So we're going to read verse 3 together. Any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp or outside of it, okay, First thing we learn is that the animals permitted for our table to eat are the same animals permitted at God's table. This is what he demanded of a sacrifice. And we're also allowed to eat it. Back in the dietary laws of chapter 11 or wherever it was. So, so it's very clear that God has presented to us what he accepts. We get to eat what he gets to enjoy. That's the first thing we learn. But then we're going to read the whole sacrifice section again, it was a sacrifice, or if it was a sacrifice, it had to be brought to God's altar. Verse 3, any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to present it as an offering, because it's a sacrifice, don't forget that, they don't bring it to the tent of meeting as an offering in front of the tabernacle, Uh, that person shall be considered guilty of bloodshed. They have shed blood and must be cut off from the people. So if you kill an animal as a sacrifice, you have to present it to the Lord, the blood. Okay. Um, The people could not kill animals as offerings whenever and wherever they chose. This would have opened the door to false worship. Because that's what the surrounding nations did. They could kill an animal for food, but they couldn't kill it as a sacrifice. And this becomes later important later on when you get to the historical books. The evil kings began to set up altars wherever they wanted. And God makes it very clear, nope, I want you to offer the sacrifice where I am. So he's teaching them something else now not only about blood and the holiness of blood and preparing us for the Messiah, but he's teaching them that I want you to sacrifice the animal where I am. Now, they didn't understand the concept of what we call uh, omnipresence. God exists everywhere. They saw God as in his own dwelling place, and that was the temple. Now, we now know because we have the Spirit of God indwelling us that God goes wherever we go, but they didn't realize all that back then. So he's teaching them, just like kindergartners, that an offering and a sacrifice have to be done in God's presence. So now we can today offer the sacrifice of praise anywhere, together and apart. Why? Because we are in God's presence all the time. But they hadn't yet understood that. So this is a, he's beginning to teach them, just like you do a kindergartner, that the blood and the sacrifice is joined together with the presence of God. And that's going to set the stage for the spiritual temple where we all enjoy the presence of God because he indwells us. But then we have this very interesting verse in verse 7. Another command. They must no longer offer any of the sacrifices to the goat idols 
to whom they prostitute themselves. So apparently the nation was already offering uh, the people, because people are cantankerous. I know, i got a bunch of you right here. They, the people are cantankerous. And they, they, they're not all sitting here listening to these things being taught. This is probably taught to some of the leaders and all of that. And everybody else is fidgety and, and doing their own thing out there. And they're already adopting the practices of the Canaanites, perhaps the Egyptians, by offering blood to these goat idols or goat demons, depending on your translation. Okay? Now I can go back one week, last week, to the Day of Atonement. Remember the Day of Atonement? He said, uh, take two goats. Right? Kill the one and lay your hands on the other. Send it out into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Remember that? Why goats? Why did he pick that one? Of all the animals he could have picked, why goats? And then I think it's because of this clue right here. They were already worshiping goats. They already were. You see, the idea of worshiping wherever you want, worshiping any of the gods, that's still part of Hinduism. Today, when I go to Nepal... Walk down the street, somebody trips and falls and don't hurt themselves. Well, there must be a God there to protect them, so they build a little altar. So people walk around, you know, bowing down to these little altars of all over the place. And God said, no, we're going to bring it all together and worship in God's presence. And the goat, uh, the word here is goat demon, was one of the gods that they worshipped. Okay? So why send it out into the wilderness? I want you to meet Ganesh. This is a Hindu god. It's one of their prime gods. I was teaching a number of years ago uh, a conference with a bunch of um, pastors in southern India, and they're all very highly trained. Um, I mean, they all have PhDs, some have two. It's a state church, and these are state pastors, and the bishop had me come to a conference. So it's customary to receive a gift. So they gave me a gift. So I'm unraveling it, and there's 200 pastors all looking out there, and I said, they just gave me Ganesh, a god. Is this a joke? So I looked up and I said, you gave me Ganesh? And he says, this is a hand-carved animal. This is expensive in their country. And they all started laughing and said, we don't need him anymore. Take him with you. <laughs> so this sits on my bookshelf across my desk so I can see it and remember. And maybe that's what's happening in the Day of Atonement. What you're worshiping is a demon. We don't need it anymore. Get it out of here. Send it out into the desert. So we kill one as a sacrifice, and we send the other one out. So he's trying to teach them that these goat idols, these demons, you should not be worshiping them. It's now prohibited. So this is probably one of the early cases where they're, they're adopting cultural practices, which have to stop. Okay, the other three sections, which we're not going to look in detail, is uh, starting in verse 10, is about eating blood. Then he goes from there, hunting animals. Then what happens when you find a dead animal? That's the third section. But all the way through here, you have this language over and over and over again. The life of a creature is in the blood. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The life of every creature is this blood. The life of every creature is this blood. That's repeated numerous times. He's, a, he's now establishing dignity for the animal kingdom because he made them too. Life is in the blood. So here's some general principles for the rest of the chapter. Eating blood made one guilty. Eating blood makes you guilty. And there's a price to pay for that, being cut off. Secondly, they could not follow pagan customs and consume blood in any way and worship any way they wanted to. 
He's teaching them. He's mitigating these evil practices. There's one way to do it. And it's not like the world. Next, um, remember that blood represented death and disease. He's communicating to them the value of blood. It is the life of the creature. Therefore, when blood is shed, life is relinquished. And they had a picture every day, whether they were hunting, they found a dead animal, or whether they sacrificed an animal. Somebody is giving up its life. There's a cost every single time for us to stay alive. There's a cost. And that sets the stage. There's a cost for us to enjoy eternal life. And that's the cross. He's turning world history right here in front of our eyes. Draining the blood gave the Israelites a very real, a very visceral picture, if you will, that death was the result. And then all he has to do is theologically connect atonement to it. And we're beginning to set the stage for the Messiah. Does this make sense? So right here in front of our eyes, world history is moving in a different direction. We're seeing it happen. Since God has designated blood for atonement, the blood, if it's offered as a sacrifice, has to be brought to God. If it's for hunting, you have to treat it with respect and bury it. Okay. Unlike the surrounding nations, this is what this chapter teaches us. No false worship. No rival shrines. Can't do whatever you want. No common use was permitted to God regarding animals in the blood. You had to treat it with deep respect. God alone has authority over life. Okay, so by now you've gotten the picture that this sets the stage for Jesus' shed blood and living in God's presence. Okay, but there's more to it than that. In the Old Testament, people were prohibited from drinking the blood but in the New Testament, in John 6, look what happens. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is a complete reversal of the commands of Leviticus 17. This is about Jesus. Okay, now, we're a community church, and we have all kinds of denominations represented here. Some of you that come from a Catholic tradition believe that the communion is the flesh and blood of Jesus. Some of you, for instance, that are Lutheran, believe that it becomes the flesh and blood of Jesus. Some of you, uh, lower church, myself included, believe it represents the, the flesh and blood of Jesus. We don't ask you to change that theology. What we ask of you in our core documents is that when you come together, we together celebrate the life-giving result of Jesus dying for us. That's what we ask you to celebrate. So when you come forward, you can bring your own tradition to the table, but to be unified around the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus and what he accomplished. This was a tough passage. Right after this comes the famous passage where Peter says on behalf of the disciples, this is difficult to, for us to grasp. And he said, are you offended by it? And it says that very day, most of the disciples abandoned Jesus because this is a reversal of Leviticus 17. Most of them abandoned Jesus. And Jesus asked Peter, and he asked the 12, are you going to abandon me too? And Peter says, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of life. 
We may not understand it, and it may be difficult to us, but we recognize, he says, that you are the Savior. You are the Lord. You have the words of life. And that captures us. Some of these passages are difficult to understand, but Jesus has the words of life, and therefore we have the words of life because we have the Spirit of God in us. So this is one of those key passages. And I, and I mentioned uh, earlier that when you see the warnings, it's almost always around the blood. Listen to this passage in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, 29, talking about communion. Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for death. You've died because you're abusing the Lord's Supper. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. He begins the section, the paragraph, by saying, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That's Leviticus 17. That's why, number one, we do this every week. This is a recalibration time when we do communion, and we're about to celebrate it together. But also, this is why often I give you chances to stop and say, what's on your conscience? Today, let's praise the Lord. Maybe let's thank the Lord. Maybe let's confess sin if the Holy Spirit's convicting you. We are going to do that in just a minute. Because that's what it means for a believer to disregard this and treat it as simple. Unimportant as simply a ritual. You see it as more than a ritual. This is one of those places where we connect with the Trinity in a very real way. That's why Jesus says twice, remember me, remember me. Don't do it in vain. That's one of the commandments. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Here it is right here. This is one of those places. Communion is very, very important. But I want you to listen to one more warning. A very, this one's not going to be up there. This is one of the most severe warnings in the scriptures. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have the, received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. That's right out of Leviticus 1 through 7. The sin sacrifices all say, if anyone sins unintentionally, here's the sacrifice. There's no sacrifice in the Old Testament for the one who sins rebelliously. The punishment for that was death. Achan, who stole the things under the bed, ban. Saul, who pulled up the witch at Endor. We can go on and on. There's a list of them. They, they deliberately rebelled against God, and the punishment was death. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. So listen to the whole thing, because I want to put it in perspective, because I'm not trying to scare you as believers. I want you to get a picture of how valuable, holy, and worthy this is. Just before that, uh, the Holy Spirit testifies about this. He says, because he's talking to Jesus, this is a covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts and I'll write them on, my mind, on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. That's the position we stand in before the Lord. Okay? Punishment in the Old Testament was death. But look what happens now. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain. Remember, he died. The curtain was split when he shed his blood. This is all Leviticus 17. 
It's amazing. It's all connected. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, now we have a new house. It's being turned into a building. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us. That's the coming of the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel 36. Every one of these phrases comes out of the Old Testament. Every one of them. To cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. It's Ezekiel 36. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will clean you like pure, refreshing water. Based on all of this, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Therefore, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. One of the potential damages or pitfalls or outcomes of, uh, of the pandemic and the quarantine is separating the church. It's really hard to do this. It's really hard to do that. I said to our elders, you can't shepherd from a TV screen. I need elders on the ground. You just can't. I need leaders on the ground here who are here with the people that are here. Because he goes on. So listen to this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not, this is the second half of the sentence, not giving up meeting together or assembling together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw the near. For if we deliberately keep on sinning, and in the context that means we're refusing to worship together. If we keep doing that, um, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there's no sacrifice for that sin. It's one of the most powerful warnings in the Bible. And that's right back to Leviticus. There's no sacrifice for rebellious sin. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses, in other words, they decided to, to rebel against what God said, died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's being cut off. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be killed? No, to be punished. Who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as unholy the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. That's why this is so important. For those of you watching online, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. That's not the goal. Unless staying at home in your pajamas has become too convenient for you, then you should wrestle with this. If you feel vulnerable and sick, please don't come. We have the technology to bring it into your living room. Please. But if it's a way of life, be very afraid. Be concerned. Every one of these warnings is attached to the shedding of blood, which comes right out of Leviticus 17. You see, Leviticus 17 is making that turn in world history. The blood is what is critical. And he had to change that perspective globally for us to understand the cross. And now we can truly understand the covenant. We entered into a covenant when you turned to him based on this right here, communion. It is important. It's not a waste of time. 
In just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to reflect on whatever the Holy Spirit's doing in your lives. Father, thank you for teaching us about blood. As Peter said, and I agree, this is challenging. It's really challenging. Uh, But yet we're not going to turn away from you like many did because you have the words of life. Thank you for bringing to us the words of life. In your son's name, Jesus, we pray because we believe in him. Amen. For those of you watching online, this concludes the online portion of our time together. Thank you so much for joining us. And continue to protect yourselves and stay well. Okay?